Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good friend of mine, a good friend of the program, of course, and the gentleman that ignored the happy talk of the V-shaped recovery in the middle of February when the equity market was hitting all-time highs. A gentleman who said, do not buy that dip when many people ventured back in as we got that initial correction. I'm pleased to say he joins us now. Mohammed El-Aryan, Alliance Chief Economic Advisor and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Mohammed, let's begin with credit. Why is that so much of a bigger focus on a morning like this morning? Because it is the way in which the disruptions will transmit through not just market segments, but the real economy. Credit has been vulnerable because it has been very decoupled from the underlying fundamentals. So when you shock it, as is being shocked right now, by a combination of no economic anchor, no technical anchor, and no policy anchor, what you're going to get is illiquidity, price gapping, and the closure of the primary issuance market. So primary has been seized up for a couple of weeks. It opened a little bit last week. Let's unpick some of these different themes. I want to start with a parallel that we can draw at the moment. Clearly, we've gone beyond December 2018. Is fifteen sixteen the last time we had a crude route and a growth shock? Is that a decent playbook for you right now, Mohammed, Or is this radically different? It is decent because that fall in oil prices was triggered by the same thing that this one was, which is the decision of Saudi Arabia to no longer play the swing producer role in an attempt to impose discipline on other oil producers. So the cause is the same. However, the context is more difficult. First, because global demand is slipping very quickly. And second, because now you need Russia to turn around in a very humiliating fashion. So this one is going to be a little bit trickier for Saudi Arabia to achieve what it's trying to achieve. Mohammed Alarian with us, folks, with Allianz, and of course, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, of course, joining Cambridge University here uh, in the autumn. Folks, one of the books you can read in this, if you want to grab onto something, is Dr. Alarian's The Only Game in Town. Look for the movie, 4th of July, 2022. I believe DiCaprio's in that uh, movie. Uh, Dr. Alarian in The Only Game in Town. Let me quote from chapter one. Like ancient doctors who tried to explain the causes of diseases while knowing nothing about germs or bacteria, academics sought to describe the functioning of developed economies, etc. The great Ferdinand Giuliano, who writes for Bloomberg Opinion as well. How are we doing with the germs and bacteria this morning? How are our institutions doing in understanding where we are? Well, they're starting to wake up to where we are, um, but they are having to play massive catch-up. Tom, you and I have been discussing this for years. We've over-relied on central banks. Central banks themselves got caught hostage by markets. We lost a lot of policy flexibility. And most importantly, we did not invest in what genuinely produces economic growth. So we have massive catch-up to play. It can be done, but it requires a complete change in mindset. 
The single most important question, Dr. Larian, at Davos was John Farrow to a guy running a hedge fund, and he said the the cycles out there, the boom bus, don't function the same at the zero bound. We're more at the zero bound than we were in January uh, in Switzerland. We're at the zero bound. Does the cyclicality of the financial system still work? Oh, absolutely. And you're going to see it. We're going to overshoot on the way down because technicals are now in control. And the big risk is not only do we converge quickly to the most sluggish fundamentals from elevated asset prices, but we overshoot them. So we cycles were never dead. I think we got complacent in so many ways. And the last eight weeks illustrate to you how complacent we became. You had that comments out of Davos. We had a G20 meeting in which the coronavirus was hardly discussed, and now we're all waking up to the realities on the ground. Can we just talk about the economics of fear just very quickly, Mohammed? It's something you've written about over the weekend, and I think it's something that would be of interest to our audience as well. Walk us through that dynamic. It's very simple. When you are taking out of your comfort zone, behavioral scientists will tell you two reactions are most likely, paralysis and insecurity. And we are being taken out of our comfort zone by the coronavirus, which means that we are paralyzed in terms of economic activity, which means we become so insecure that we become too risk averse. We exaggerate the probability of getting sick, and that results in demand and supply destruction. I remember right at the outset of this coronavirus fear, I told you guys on the radio, and I remember exactly where I was. I was at an airport when I told you, remember the notion of economic sudden stops. It doesn't occur in modern-based economies. It occurs mostly in fragile and failed states. But when it occurs, it is particularly dangerous because it destroys both demand and supply. And that is what we're living through right now. Mohammed, let's talk about the SAV to that culture of fear, that fear that we see pervading through markets that we see when you go to the grocery store and you see Purell being hoarded behind the counter with a sign that says only three per customer. I want to talk about the Fed's role. And Boston Fed's uh, Rosengren on Friday came out and hinted at the potential for the Fed to engage in ECB and Bank of Japan uh, style asset purchases, saying in a situation where both short term interest rates and 10 year Treasury rates approach the zero lower bound, allowing the Fed to purchase a broader range of assets could be important. Do you foresee the possibility of the Fed buying corporate bonds and stocks from here? Lisa, I foresee whatever it takes policy approach that is going to be both in central banks and government agency. But having said that, it's important to understand what the Fed can and cannot do. The Fed can support balance sheets. It can do so. It can put money in people's hands and support balance sheets. It cannot restore the type of confidence needed for economic activity to pick up. So the Fed has to understand that it's using policy ammunition in a very ineffective way. And it's got to make a judgment as to when to use it. I was against the 50 basis point cut last week. I thought it would do nothing at all, and it would take away policy flexibility. That's what happened. The most important thing for the Fed, and its major responsibility to the system, is to laser-like focus on market, market functioning, understand how markets are functioning, better understand market technicals, and address the pockets of liquidity that are going to arise 
and that risk becoming systemic. That is what the Fed should be doing. It should not be trying to flood the system in a way that's going to end up being very inefficient and use up flexibility that we will need later on. Mohamed Alarian with us, and he will continue with us uh, in moments. We'll have in a couple of minutes, I should say, scheduled to have Francisco Blanche of Bank of America on oil down what, John? 20%? Is that a general statement? That's the moving crude, but the moving futures, obviously, down. we're limit yeah. down, so we can get you an early read on the S&P 500 through the Spider S&P 500 ETF, and we are now session lows, down a little more than seven yeah. percentage points. I'd also note the German two-year as well, 0.975, is one of those global litmus paper, uh, 30-year bond a little better in the last 20 minutes. Why don't you pick it up, John, with Dr. Larry? Mohammed, many people today, of course, will draw parallels between now and 2008. And obviously, for many people, we are nowhere near that situation. It was a different world. But are you just as concerned about corporate balance sheets as you were about the household balance sheet back then? Um, no, John. I mean, ironically, this is not 2008, which is both good and bad. Um, it's not 2008 in a good sense because I'm not worried about the banks and therefore I'm not worried about the payments and settlement system. Yeah. Remember, the payments and settlement system is the nerve center of any modern-based market economy. If that is no longer functioning, everything will stop. And that was the reality of 2008. So there's a good way that we're not similar to 2008, but there's another way we're not similar to 2008, which I worry about. The extent of global policy coordination is much lower. And whether it's the coronavirus, whether, the ex- whether it's the excessive reliance on liquidity, whether it is markets that have been mispriced for a long time, this is a global problem that requires collective actions. So the bad thing relative to 2008 is that we're not going to get a London summit quickly that will allow to put an economic bottoming. We need advances on the medical side, and that's going to require a lot better global coordination. Mohammed, when does the sell-off that we're expecting to deepen in the high-yield bond market, in credit markets more broadly, when does it become a buying opportunity? When you get distressed levels. So I, I'm excited in a sense that as much as the next, as the immediate period ahead is going to be very treacherous, as much as that we are going to have massive opportunities. But understand where these opportunities are going to arise. They're not going to arise by buying a passive index and just betting on the whole marketplace. It's going to be very selective. It's going to be in distressed credit. It's going to be in structured credit. It's going to be in relative value. And it's going to be in good companies with strong balance sheets, high cash that are trading at bargain prices. That is where the opportunities are going to arise. It's going to start selectively. And then when we start seeing high probability of medical advances to contain the spread of the virus and increase immunity through vaccine, then we're going to establish a bottom for the more general investing through index buying. Mohammed, before we let you go, just a final question. Tom brought up your book, The Only Game in Town, and I know you were writing up a new edition, and I was looking forward to it coming out later this year. Do you need to rewrite the start all over again and get back to it? Yeah, you know, it's a pain because the e-book is coming out in, in just a few weeks. And the reason why I wanted to bring it out, because when it came out in 2016, it was too early. My timing was way too early. People didn't realize what happens when you rely excessively on central banks, that we, we were planting many seeds of future economic and financial malaise. 
So, so that's why I wanted to bring it out again um, when people ha- have realized that that's where we are. But the coronavirus pressed fast forward on everything. Mohammed, great to catch up with you. Been looking forward to the release in a couple of weeks' time. Mohammed Alarian, there, Alliance's chief economic advisor and Bloomberg opinion columnist on the road ahead. Joining us on the phone, I'm pleased to say, is Francisco Blanche, Bank for America, Global Head of Commodities and Derivatives Research. What a pleasure, a privilege to have Francisco with us on the show on a morning like this morning. Francisco, let's talk about the potential that OPEC Plus, together with Russia, can get back together at some point in the near future and strike a deal. Um, hey, uh, John, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I I am not sure. Um, I am not sure if they'll they'll come in uh, and have a deal anytime soon, because it's not clear what the rationale behind this last move has been. Um, I think the, the the Russians were very reluctant to cut supply uh, to begin with to deal with this virus. Um, they made their position very clear to the Saudis. The Saudis. Um, wanted to cut a million and a half barrels a day of supply. That's the proposal they held on the table last week. And ultimately, that uh, either the talks broke down, uh, which is one possibility, or maybe the Russians uh, swayed the Saudis <clears throat> and convinced them that maybe you know it's not so bad to let the market yeah. run its course and, and ultimately clean up the U.S. shale sector. Uh, that both have been wanting to do it for a while. And right. uh, I guess this is as good an opportunity as ever. I see in all the research notes this morning from the sophisticates like yourself, Francisco, everybody's talking about hedge exposure. Forget about like Russia loses, somebody wins, Brazil loses, whatever that kind of macro uh, baloney is. Explain the hedge exposure right now. Who loses the most when you see a 20% move in something that's supposed to be certain? Well, uh, I mean, I think I think the people that uh, that will probably end up losing a lot is is those that have uh, hedging mismatches. So there could be trading houses, um, traders, uh, potentially some uh, some broker dealers that have exposure to this. Um, the principal exposure that is uh, not if you're a broker, but if you're a broker dealer, um, and. Um, and it could also be, I mean, and, and frankly, the biggest losers are going to be the oil companies themselves that have not hedged. And remember, a lot of companies were underhedged because at the end of last year, we had something called the phase one U.S.-China trade deal, which was supposed to put the global economy back on track. Uh, we were supposed to see a restocking cycle of uh, manufactured goods. We were supposed to see a, a stronger economy. And I think a lot of people may have actually just lightened up on their hedging uh, heading into the first half, which, which, and those are the ones that are going to be hurt the most. Now, who benefits? Uh, I think it's going to be consumers benefiting here. Um, obviously, consumers in many parts of the world are, are not really traveling that much because of the coronavirus. But uh, if you are able to travel, you're going to get a pretty good deal uh, with, uh, with the drop in, in fuel prices that we're seeing right now. Francisco, I'm looking right now at the uh, cash bond market, the high yield bond market, which actually opened at eight uh, on Wall Street. And we're seeing just some violent moves in the shale uh, debt. We're looking at 40 cent moves lower, Uh, huge, huge uh, kinds of shifts. And I'm wondering going forward, is this going to reshape the shale industry profoundly and actually uh, curtail production in the U.S. for the longer term? Um, so I, I think the answer to those questions, both of those questions, is yes. We will see a curtailment of production, and we will see a, a profound impact on the industry. Remember, this industry has been already 
um, hit on, on, in all fronts. Uh, during the 2010s, the industry uh, probably wasted about 130 to 140 billion dollars uh, of investor money, both in terms of equity and debt issuance. So very few investors actually want to own any any energy to begin with. Um, and I think this this uh, last blow is going to uh, hurt the uh, particularly the levered players, the smaller players. Those you mentioned high yield. Now remember, high yields uh, characterized not only because it has a wider differential to investment grade debt, but also because it has shorter maturity. Um, so a lot of this debt is due uh, in the next uh, 12, 18 months, and that's that's gonna that's gonna come to the front. And then the other thing that's gonna happen is banks are probably gonna look at their reserve-based lending practices and reduce the uh, money that they lend um, that they lend the the, the um, oil and gas developers uh, against their assets. So so we are going to see a very meaningful reduction in capital relative to where we were uh, a, a month ago, which was already pretty bad. With so, regards so that, to that, Francisco, just to jump in, we're exploring different parallels. Just give me a snapshot of where we are right now, the supply-demand dynamic, just quite simply compared to where we were in fifteen sixteen when we saw these kind of things playing out. Night and day, similar, worse? What is it right now? Um, so, so I think from a demand standpoint, this is definitely way worse. Uh, we are going to see a global demand contraction this year, most likely, uh, for oil. And, uh, and we haven't seen one since 2008, 2009. So in terms of demand, it looks a little more like 08, 09 than definitely than it does like 15, 16. From a supply standpoint, it's unclear how much the Saudis are going to be ramping up supplies here. Um, they've aggressively discounted their crude, and, uh, and there is talk about Saudi increasing production over 10 million barrels a day, maybe over 11 million <laughs> barrels a day. There's different numbers they're throwing around. But, uh, but it, you know, definitely uh, it's going to be, it's going to yeah. be uh, uh, almost just as bad as 15, 16. So it's almost, in a way, it's a combination of 08 and 15, 16. Pretty bad for oil prices. That's what we think we could go back into the 20s here for Brent. What are the ramifications of going back into the 20s for Brent and the equivalency to West Texas Intermediate for America's oil independence? Do we sacrifice that as Permian Basin shuts down? Um, well, uh, we will definitely see a pullback in, in supplies, and uh, it will hurt uh, America's energy independence. But, but here's the good news. Uh, we know we can create America's energy independence again at prices of $40, $45 a barrel, which are still very uh, very good for consumers. So um, while, as, while as I'm, I'm uh, certainly uh, concerned about the industry and certainly concerned about the potential fallout of, of this move, I will also say that, um, that, that if prices were to rise ten dollars a barrel, uh, we would get the industry back uh, back up and running. So, so I I think I mean I think that it's um, it's definitely going to be a blow against uh, the the U.S. energy independence story, um, but but it's yeah. a blow that is is manageable for consumers. Um, now the question we have to ask ourselves is: it going to be a big blow to some states, in particular like Texas and Oklahoma, as it was last time? Or do they have a more diversified economy and they can handle a little better? So that's, uh, that's I think, right. a big, big question mark out there. This has been wonderful. Uh, Francisco Bunch, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it with Bank of America. Let's bring in John Wraith, shall we? UBS Head of UK Rate Strategy joins us on the phone. John, fantastic to have you with us. I was up waiting for the bond market to open up last night and just wow, to see the long end come in 43 basis points and drop like a stone beneath 1%. Your first take, John. 
I mean, this is just a colossal um, flight to safety going on everywhere. Um, we haven't seen anything like this, of course, in the past, and um, and the reasons are well understood. You know, we're seeing a perfect storm essentially, which is forcing huge waves of money into the bond markets. Front-end yields now everywhere, um, sort of crashing down towards zero or even well below in certain markets, and as a result, money now sort of flooding further down those yield curves as, as um, you know investors run for cover. So that's you know everything going into the bond markets and, and pushing these yields to unprecedented levels. John, Lisa and I have been talking about what we're modelling in the bond market. What are we modelling now? Zero rates on Fed funds, a recession, perhaps inevitably. What are we talking about now? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're rapidly heading there. Certainly, if you look <clears> at the <throat> Fed funds futures, uh, John, you know, you can see that, that the market's anticipating the rate getting very close to zero in, in fairly short order as it is um, in the UK. Clearly, in, in the Eurozone, we're already well into negative territory and, and markets expecting to go deeper into that. I think one thing that's different, you know, we have seen short yields at these levels <clears> in the past. If you look at two-year treasuries, for example, for all the sort of headlong fall, we're still 15 basis points or so above the levels we got to um, back in sort of 2011. Um, what's different is these long yields. They've never been down at these levels. Um, and it is a sign that the oh. markets think essentially it's going to take even longer for any sort of recovery to build. And, and so people are happy to buy longer bonds at these levels as well. John, what does your world tell central bankers? Just very simply, if we impute deflation and disinflation, it suggests they're far, far behind. What does it tell them? And can we see central bank action this morning? Uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible, Tom, but I, I think what it tells them, or rather what they'll use the, the, the market moves more precisely to tell fiscal authorities is that they have done or are expected to do in the case of those who haven't already reached the, the zero lower bound, everything in their power. You know, they will cut rates to the floor if, if they haven't already. Um, they will engage in more asset purchases. But when yields are at these levels, it's telling you, I think, that they have run out of road or that they don't have tools which are going to materially change the trajectory here. Therefore, the focus needs to turn to governments and, and the ability of fiscal policy to try and, um, well, at this stage, cushion the expected impact on demand and then try and sort of lift these economies and get them moving forward again. I want to pick up exactly on that point, the idea that the market is implying that central banks around the world are out of uh, out of tools. Tom, uh, John, I'm looking right now, Fed funds futures, pricing in basically zero mm. interest rates in the United States yeah. uh, over the next few meetings, and it's quickly coming in. And I'm looking, meanwhile, at the fact that the yield curves are just collapsing. We are seeing an absolute mm. flattening. The implication here, John, no inflation. This is not going to work, period. Full yeah, stop. Yeah, I think that's what we're seeing off the back of another massive move lower in crude. And, John, there's another thing that we've got to think about. To the dynamic that Lisa just pictured for us, for our listeners on radio, when the Fed cuts rates, we're not just adjusting the front end to that reality. We seem to be pushing it right the way through the curve. So when the Fed yeah. comes down 50 basis points, 10s, 30s, they start to rally too. We used to be able to mm. generate what's called that bull steepener where you start to aggressively pull down the front end and you get a little bit of a lift at the back end. Why aren't we seeing that this time around? Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is the view that, you know, the, the markets are concluding central banks do not have the ability to lift uh, inflation and medium term growth forecasts. I mentioned that two year Treasury yields are still above the levels they got to in, in 2011. At that time, 10 year Treasury yields were up at sort of close to 2%, so way above where we are now because of that bull steepening, as you mentioned, John. And some trust that, that you know, the um, measures taken by the central banks would reflate these economies. That seems to have gone. Um, and they will do what 
they can. They'll obviously also provide liquidity measures and try and avoid any sort of um, deterioration in the situation as a result of a credit crunch. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, as they deploy all of the tools in their in their um, in their ammunition box, if that isn't enough, then fiscal policy is going to have to come to the rescue sooner rather than later. John, let's talk about some of the other tools that central banks have. What are the key interventions that we should be looking for at this point, given the fact that we are seeing stress uh, pick up in repo markets and other key areas of the financial system? Mm Well, interestingly, I mean, we, we, it so happens in, in the UK that we've got the, the, the budget coming in a couple of days in the middle of all of this and all the measures that are being discussed now, the focus has turned away from all the sort of typical, uh, you know, fiscal measures and investment and infrastructure plans and things and towards the short term measures that are going to help in the anticipated situation confronting corporates. That will certainly include the provision of, of liquidity and, as, as I said, any sort of viable business having access to credit at fair and, and reasonable prices as the banks sort of fight on various different fronts. Um, the governments are, are keen to make sure that doesn't get passed on through higher borrowing costs to companies. I think the governments are going to bring in measures like giving companies longer to pay their, their, their taxes and addressing sort of supply chain disruption that comes about um, on the back of the, the potential disruption coming from the coronavirus situation as all of these supply chains, um, you know, get, get damaged along the way. So, you know, the intent is for governments to do what they can and central banks, of course, as well, to try and ensure that any um, viable companies are able to continue functioning as well as possible and don't get unfairly and, and uh, you know, long term detrimentally impacted by um, by these sort of short term problems coming down the supply chains and through the, the banking system. John, stay close for our listeners worldwide. Just tune again. We will go commercial free as much as we can over the next couple of hours right here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Equity futures are limit down. So I don't have a read for you there. Where I do have a read is on the S&P 500 spider ETF in a pre-market down around about 5.94%. For any of you thinking about the cash open now at 9.30, the rules as follows. The S&P 500, this is a level one breach, can drop 7% from the previous close. This is after 15 minutes and then trading will be halted for 15 minutes if you have a gap lower of more than 7% after 15 minutes. So just a couple of levels you've got to think about today's session. The kind of things that I didn't expect to be talking about at the beginning of 2020, but here we are. They've been hugely debated over the years and rarely used, particularly at that kind of 15-minute halt. But in today's day and age, I mean, I, I get it a long time ago where it was yelling and screaming on the floor and all the romance of the exchange. Today, it seems almost quaint. Well, actually, I don't know what else to say. Worse than quaint. Some people are saying that it's actually exacerbated some of the price moves overnight in other markets because you have the U.S. market halted. And the implication to other markets is that things are so terrible uh, that things had to be frozen. And that's sort of one concern people have. Yeah, I'd let it go. Um, You know, my basic point uh, with it is, is it's quaint and it will be tested. It'll be interesting to see what we see this morning. But the point is we will get what open the VIX. I haven't even correlated where the VIX is. There are some good notes on that over the over the weekend. But within the data check, I'm looking at Euro Swissy 105.844. George Cervellis with that incredibly important note for Deutsche Bank. And you know, you wonder here in that where are the surprises going to be given these market moves? John, what's the surprise you see? We'll turn back to John Wraith in a minute. The surprise for me was just seeing the move in oil. Not that we didn't expect to move lower, of course we did, but to see crude gap lower by 31% is stunning. And many of us, of course, got up early for the European Open this morning. And just to see this series of red headlines just crater through the Bloomberg, 
The DAX falling as much as 7.4%, set to enter bear market. The stock's 50, down 4.7%, set to enter a bear market. The stock 600, the FTSE. These headlines just kept coming through the terminal at this brutal speed. And when you see things lighting up that way, I think, Lisa, it just adds to the panic of the moment, doesn't it? Absolutely. Also, the question is, where are the stress points? Again, I go back to, uh, you know, what's going on in the currency markets in particular. The Japanese yen very much in focus uh, with the dollar plunging 3% versus the yen raising questions about whether this is margin trades being unwound, whether this is sort of leveraged currency bets uh, and and sort of when does the Japanese government step in, given the fact that their economy is not doing well and wasn't doing well ahead of the coronavirus. Away from the major pairs, folks, and this is inside base. Baseball, but you look at dollar yen, yeah. You look at euro yen, yeah. How about something like yen Singapore dollar? It's eight standard deviations off trend. All you need to know is that's worse than a medical chart, to be honest. I mean, eight standard deviations is a huge, huge move. John, I look at these distortions in the market, and I'm sorry, central bankers have to have to react. I'll give you a worse currency pair than that. <clears throat> Norwegian krona versus the Japanese yen at one point overnight, a six percentage point move. On a currency pair. Unreal. Let's turn back to John Wraith, shall we, and talk about the next central bank move. UBS had a UK rate strategy still with us. John, on Thursday, there's an ECB meeting. I imagine President Lagarde wanted a little bit more time to get her feet under the desk and get used to her surroundings. How difficult is it for her right now to get that governing council on side to deploy something this Thursday? Yeah. I mean, unbelievably difficult because unlike the others, although everyone's rapidly heading that way, you know, they have to a large degree and and has been the case for a while run out of ammunition. I mean, the the market's expecting, I think, another sort of 25 basis points of ECB easing over the sort of, you know, course of the rest of this year. But, you know, given where they're starting from, it's really questionable whether that's going to have any impact on anything. They can obviously resume, step up, intensify government bond purchases, but they need to change issuer limits to be able to do that in any yeah, but, significant way. John, this is so important. Mark, they're being overcome by events, and the event is disinflation and outright yeah. deflation. I mean, how do central banks act to the impulse of disinflation that we're living right now this morning? Um, well, and you know, if they'd had ammunition, then clearly they would they would be under pressure to deploy it in a very significant way, which is why we're pricing in what we are for the Fed, for example, and to a degree the Bank of England in terms of rate cuts and QE and so on. But as I say, the ECB is already there, so um, the, the sort of pressure on fiscal policy is going to be even more significant and come even earlier there. Then you have the problems, of course, uh, in the eurozone of the fiscal compact and the either unwillingness or inability of governments to borrow within those rules. So you know the, the the problems there are even more intense at a time when monetary policy has its foot to the floor and yet we're now being assailed by you know this perfect storm of events all pushing in the same direction in a very severe and almost unprecedented way i mean it really is you know emergency stations for all of these central banks and governments and in the case of uh, the, the the eurozone uh, the monetary policymakers have pretty much run out of road and the fiscal policymakers are constrained by these rules so it's it's probably an even more severe situation and even more worrying one there than elsewhere, I would argue. John, we saw this morning uh, two-year and five-year UK rates fall below Mm -hmm. zero for the first time. And I'm wondering, what is the prospect of negative rates over in the United Kingdom, as well as potentially even the United States? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, we had gill yields. They're back at sort of zero or slightly above now, but we did have, as you say, shorter term gilt yields drop below zero. They can certainly go lower still. You know, there is this this um, mantra now that it's about the return of capital, not the return on capital. And short dated sovereign bonds of well rated issuers are, are the safest assets out there. So people will keep buying them even at negative yields in, in this sort of environment. When you look at the swaps market, um, rates are still some way above zero in the UK and the US and likely to stay there as long as both the central banks say, you know, we can cut, we will cut towards zero, but going negative brings um, counterproductive consequences by squeezing banks' margins excessively. Uh, the markets, the financial markets so far have, have believed that um, that line and therefore swap rates, I think, have a very hard floor somewhere around 25 basis points or so, which we're sort of rapidly heading towards. But I don't think they can go negative unless negative policy rates becomes more realistic. I think we're still some way from that in uh, in markets like the UK and the US. Hey, John, great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time on such a busy morning this morning. John Rayther of UBS. Martin Adams running all of Bloomberg Intelligence equity for us as well. Corporations have to price in disinflation, deflation as well. Do they have sector to sector with your vast team that you've got? Folks, it takes up a football, it's like a football field of securities research. When you look at your team, do corporations have the elasticity, the malleability to adjust to what we see on our screen? You know, I think it depends on what corporations. Obviously, energy companies are at the center of weakness. Oh, yeah, but come on, away but from that. If you look at yeah, you look at consumer staples companies, you look at healthcare companies, you look at even technology companies. It's a completely different ballgame. So I think what you need to do is be a bit discerning in within your equity market exposure. Obviously, the value in high vol stocks are going to continue to suffer. Obviously, the energy, some of the industrials and materials names are going to continue to suffer. But there are potential beneficiaries. And I think over the course of this day, you're going to see some cooler heads start to prevail and you're going to see people start to think about, okay, what do 0% interest rates and $30 oil prices really mean? for behavior longer term. And functionally, they mean it's effectively a tax cut for the U.S. consumer. Once we get through coronavirus, it's very supportive and very stimulative. It's hard to see in an environment of panic and an environment like this. But the reality is in this cycle, we've dealt with a lot of shocks. 2011, we had a contraction in GDP growth for a quarter. 2015, we almost had a contraction in GDP growth as well. So I do think that markets are very, very volatile in the short run. But ultimately, this type of panic behavior creates an opportunity for investors. What's the panic in the bank stocks, as John was talking about? What's that implying? I mean, it's the bank stocks are also value stocks. Right. Values getting thrown completely out. We got we did a little bit of analysis of the momentum relative to value trade. It's very typical that what you see in an environment of markets falling, value stocks fall the most. It also is a function of interest rates are falling. Right. The yield curve is still very flat. Interest rates are falling. So there's an assumption that net interest margin is going to get squeezed. Obviously, capital markets activity is going to be very, very light for the first quarter at the very least because there's no activity. They're high beta. So they also are going to fall faster than the market. So they're unfortunately just in a bad position sort of structurally. Now, big, big stocks like JP Morgan, big companies like that, they're just getting, these are babies that are getting thrown out with the bathwater. 
I, I mean, I'm looking John at JP Morgan. I'm trying to do the math now. I think it's down twenty something percent, twenty eight, twenty nine percent on the year the through twenty twenty. No, from the peak, from the yeah, on the year basis, you know, from the peak, uh, it's uh, trading at ninety seven right now. Dividend yielded north of three percent on JP Morgan. <clears throat> on the likes of Wells Fargo, north of 5%. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in an environment like this, the dividend yields are going to look nice because the stock is adjusting so quickly and the dividends may well change on yeah. some of these big energy players, on some of the big financials as well. I also think it's always em- worth emphasizing that point. But income in equities right now, yes. it must look ridiculously attractive, Gina. It is, though I think you, again, have to pick your spots carefully because if you sort of um, segment the income stream, the dividend income payers in the S&P 500, and you look at the highest yielders, they're actually becoming higher and higher beta stocks. I mean, many of them are energy companies. Uh, many of them are, you would qualify them as near junk this companies, is the risk. right? And that's the risk. So you want to be really careful on the dividend sustainability as you make that <clears throat> point. I actually don't think the financials dividend sustainability is an issue at all. I think it's very sustainable. The financials never took on leverage this cycle. They're very low leverage, especially relative to where they were in the last cycle. However, the energy companies are certainly at risk and you're seeing that reflected in energy stocks. I mean, small cap energy stocks dropped 10% on Friday. They're going to get absolutely crushed again But are today. they going to stay in business? Do they have the solvency liquidity issues that Lisa Bramowitz is talking about? Uh, some of the small caps, probably not. I and mean, we've already seen a bankruptcy in small cap uh, energy this year. We'll probably right. see a couple of more because it's not sustainable <clears throat> at a level of $30, yeah. $25. These companies will not be able to yeah. stay in business. Uh, 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 John, uh, the two-year German, 0.973, straight down. No, no capture yet. Absolutely incredible. Gina, fantastic to catch up with you. What a morning. Busy for everyone. And thank you very much for being with us on Bloomberg Radio. If you're fighting for a wild card spot and you go out to the West Coast and you play the three patsy teams of the National Hockey League and you go L, L, L. That's not a good thing. <laughs> That's not. We thought he'd be out today, not with a virus, but just suffering with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Luke Kawa joins us this morning. I mean, before they went out and did the West Coast swing, that's supposed to be WWW, right? I mean, but like whenever anyone goes on the West Coast swing, they lose, right? Like the Penguins just did that West Coast yeah, swing right before the Leafs, and they went zero yeah. and three too. But yeah, if I if I had to stay at home with a broken ego, I'd be at home every day. So we're we're <laughs> we're in like, the office again today. Luke Kawa with us, and he was exceptionally strong over the weekend. Luke, you put out a spectacular chart of the volatility of the ten-year yield, and are you willing to say we're back to Lehman territory? Oh, oh no, we're we're above that. It's like uh, the the TY VIX, which is the, the it's the same construction methodology as the VIX. So it's actually measuring the volatility of the price and the ten year note rather than uh, rather than the yield. So you you could say just because of base effects, uh, you know, you should be thinking you're getting jumpier as we approach zero. But yeah, that uh, we got as high as essentially fourteen seven five, I believe, this morning. What that means in practical terms is essentially you're betting for the ten year right. note to move about one percentage point per day, which is just a crazy degree of volatility yeah. in bonds expected. So yeah, that's that's happened. When you uh, drained the electricity of Manhattan and loaded up the three Bloombergs this morning, what did you see on the screen? Oh, when I loaded up this morning, the the main thing that saw that, uh, you know, freaked me out and is freaking any, everyone out is the, the extent to which how quickly this became credit-centric concern. So last week you had a really odd dichotomy where 
You had uh, CDX investment grade and high yield widening by, you know, meaningful amounts and stocks were still up. The amount of that discrepancy was very, very rare. And the last time we saw anything so like it. So what happened on Monday? Well, the, everything exploded. Like right now, if you're looking at high yield or uh, investment grade CDX relative to its uh, three month right. average, it's we're getting into the six sigmas, Tom, which okay, I know I, you're, I, I, I know your favorite. I want to translate this right now, folks. This is the protection of credit default swaps against all of these troubled debt securities and they're on a trend. And then when they get off the trend, they go out one or two standard deviations. Three is normal, four is ugly. In the medical business, six standard deviations is ugly, and that's Jack, the late Jack Welch's Six Sigma, isn't it? Yeah, that's Are that's you okay there. Yeah, I, hey, <laughs> I, I I can I certainly couldn't do it any better. And yeah, the better than the Maple Leafs, This is right? the yeah yeah yeah. So like this is essentially what we're seeing is a lot of this has to do obviously with energy and energy being a focal point in the high yield universe. But the extent to which this is also in investment grade also really makes you think this is about more generalized credit stress and people kind of all jumping to the same place at once, which makes these products weird is that everyone's loved hedging uh, with IGCDX just because, you know, okay. when everything hits the fan, you know it has that convexity. It gives a real jump. But what the, what that means, though, is if is if this is the one that everyone wants to own, it also is the one that okay. dealers are the most short. Are, so you have the effect of buying this back just to kind of okay. hedge your exposure. Let me translate this. You own something and you want a protection against it, so you hedge with this fancy pants investment grade security. It's gone bad in the last 24 hours, right? Well, it's, I mean, if you've, if you've hedged with this, it's gone good. Your hedge has gone good. The, you know, the underlying market itself, definitely not good. But uh, you know, the, hedge is, the hedge is performing in a way I think people would expect it to at a time like this, which uh, you know, there are a lot of things out there that haven't necessarily done that. So, Luke, if you, as you look across asset classes here, as the equities kind of limit down uh, the yield curve below 1% for the first time ever, oil falling out of bed, is it panic in the market right now? Is this different than maybe last week? Yeah, I'd say the, the main thing to watch for like your, your clear sign of panic, and I remember this from when I was talking with Tom on the morning of February 6th, 2018, and I believe we were wondering like, why the heck? This is huge risk off. We just had the biggest one day jump in volatility on record. Why are short term treasury yields going up? And Tom said, oh, that's easy. They're, you know, they're being used as a source of funds. Once the treasury market starts to become a source of funds, then that probably means we're, we're in true, true panic. However, things look, you know, it, I, you can't not call this panic, but things can get panickier. Panickier. Looking at gold here, a uh, little bit of a, a bid there. That continues that. <laughs> trajectory so that's just your traditional flight to quality luke yeah i mean the flight to quality message is actually something you see uh very uniformly across markets if you look yeah. at factors in the equity market well, what's held up the best the profitability factor if you look at a, a basket of goldman stacks stocks that have strong balance right. sheets relative to the weak ones that's at its uh, best level since 2012 so this is where people are hiding it's in yield and it's in quality and although the energy companies have one in the yield they don't have the other okay what we're going to do here is do a data check of the market opening we're thrilled that mr kawa and his entourage will stay with us through the market opening and we'll continue this really sophisticated conversation trying to get convexity into every third minute discussion as well convexity folks is when you have to get out it's the acceleration of the trade going the opposite uh, 
way. What you need to know right now is many of these safe havens have moved and moved abruptly 45 seconds away from the market open. Gold up $13.1686 the ounce. And critically, Japanese yen right now is testing the strength that we saw at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. and somewhat near where we were at 11 p.m. last night in the early uh, Asia uh, morning. The yen right now, Paul Sweeney, 101.84. Yes, yeah, search for it. As Luke was just mentioning, search for a safe haven. We see that, that yen at 101.85. Uh, it's interesting here, just uh, looking at crude here, off uh, even 20% here, $32.67 for WTI <clears throat> right. right here. So clearly that supply-demand issue really weighing on the markets here, given the Saudi news. This is Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. We welcome you from New York and Bloomberg 1130, Sirius XM Channel 119, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston. Our special coverage today, we are commercial-free, and we thank our sponsors very much for allowing us uh, to do this uh, today. The Dow opens off 1,700 points. There's variant limit constraints as well. Uh, Paul, I'll pick it up here as you look at the data, but it's something to say we're down 5,000-plus points from where we were not that long ago. Yeah, three weeks ago, Tom, we were you know talking about we were talking about daily highs um, almost every day here. So what's changed here? Well, what's changed is, you know, the just the outlook for global GDP growth right. uh, driven by the right. coronavirus. It's really picked up as well. The DXY that blended index ninety four point eight zero. The yen one hundred one ninety two. Uh, rounded up euro dollar one fifteen one fourteen sixty four itself. We're down seventeen hundred. Make it eighteen hundred points in the Dow. And we'll settle out in over the next 15 minutes or so. The levels, Standard & Poor's 527.70, and the Dow 24,035 right now. Our opening bell always brought to you by SEI, today's competitive marketplace, requires asset managers to become more operationally adept. See how you can transform your business. With SEI's global platform at seic.com slash IMS as well. Brazilian Real looking at EM. That's out to new levels, 4.77. Even Turkish Lear with all the idiosyncrasies there of the border and with Syria and Russia. Uh, Turkish Lira weaker today as well, 6.11. Mexican peso, 21.12. And I bring up South African Rand, but I can't because my... My terminal's on fire here. Down 1,800. <laughs> Paul, I, I can't remember if I've ever seen a negative 1,800 on no. the Dow. No, I have not. Uh, you know, we're <clears throat> down 7% here across the equity indices right here. Uh, Luke, as we look at the opening here, a couple minutes into it, uh, you know, again, equity markets uh, now just kind of opening up here. How do you think... What do you think of these expectations for on the average trading desk out there? Are they saying, hey, we got to step in here and provide some support? Or are they just kind of saying, this is really outside of all of our models. Let's stay on the sidelines unless you know we really have to get in there. The main thing I've heard from people who I've been talking to over the weekend, because everyone who's been anyone has been in over the weekend gaming out, like, what are our vulnerabilities, et cetera, et cetera. That's the main concern. Nobody is trying to get greedy right here. Like, there's that line, when the time comes to buy, you won't want to. That's very much the order of the day right now. Folks are mainly interested in, okay, where's our leverage? Where's our vulnerable positions right. that are going to be tough to exit? And let's make sure we do that now. 
Uh, Luke Cabo with us. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes, Luke? I a know you've got a, a, yeah. a pressing date calendar as well. Apple Computer, negative 21. That's a 7.5% uh, move. Added up over three days, 7, 8, 11. I'm going to call 12% down Apple Computer. How about JP Morgan is another uh, indicator of where we are. Down 13%. Uh, plus nine, make it 10 over the last uh, two days. So in three days, that's 22-ish percent on JP Morgan as well. I might as well go with another high flyer, Lukawa driving that big machine that he drives. Tesla down 13% uh, percent plus six makes it 18, 19% over the last uh, three days. Some of the indications that we see out there, negative 18.55 on the Dow. Paul, we haven't we haven't captured a bid yet on the opening, have we? No, we really haven't here. Uh, again, we've been sitting down here, you know, Tom, down about 7% here. And again, it's a term that we've used a little bit over the last couple of weeks, and we've heard some of our strategists talk about it, which is price discovery here. There's so many new variables in the marketplace and we're seeing it on the up and down moves, uh, kind of investors looking for some levels yeah. here. You know, uh, Luke, what have flows been in our, in our institutions flush with cash right now? It's, that's been a difficult thing to get a handle on. I think, uh, you know, that's Eric Balchunas, our senior ETF ad, uh, strategist can probably give you a lot better handle on that. I, I do subscribe to the theory though that in general, Coming into this, if you just look at kind of notional exposure uh, okay. that you would estimate yeah. through your S&P E-minis, <clears throat> kind of the, the yeah. buildup in those contracts, et cetera, uh, NASDAQ too, those were those are relatively high across the asset management space. And it does suggest, you know, that we were going into this yeah. a little a little happier okay. about risk that we had been in several years. Uh, Luke, you can leave. We have a trading halt. It's the only way, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the only way Luke Cowell can get out of here. Well, this is a level one trading halt. These have been put in place ages ago, and it really is, you know, not to make light about it, but this is for the good of discovering market stability in our indiscoverable pricing call, isn't it? Lukawa, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.